ask an employer what's lacking in today's workers, they'll give you a long list of items. According to surveys, about 80% of those concerns feature skills like communication, teamwork, integrity, and creativity, rather than any kind of technical skill related to a business process or system. This domain of non-technical skills goes by a number of names, non-cognitive, soft skills, professional skills, work readiness skills, and social-emotional skills, to name just a few. Non-cognitive abilities are the master skills of finding, keeping, and advancing in careers. This episode of Hardly Working is a rebroadcast of an event that explored a new volume of research, AEI's vocation, career, and work team, published earlier this year. The volume is entitled, Minding Our Workforce, The Importance of Non-Cognitive Skills in Employment, which is available free of charge via the AEI website. Due to length, we split this event into two podcasts. This is part one, and it features comments from Albert Cheng, a University of Arkansas professor of education who discusses the moral architecture of non-cognitive skills, and Diane Schanzenbach, director of the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University, who discusses how to build non-cognitive skills for the future of the American economy. I hope you enjoy the discussion, and please come back for part two. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome uh, to this afternoon's discussion about minding our workforce and the importance of non-cognitive skills in employment and career. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy to have you all here. Um, we have been working on uh, the volume uh, that we're going to be discussing today for um, a, about a year and a half now. And um, I think it's a critical area um, for investigation um, for the future of our workforce. Um, and I'll be um, providing just a little bit of an overview here at the beginning um, of the presentation. And then I'll introduce our, our panelists um, and some of their background and then, uh, and then we'll move on from there. So why don't we just go ahead and get started um, with the first slide. So the, the background on this project is that um, the volume itself is a follow-up on a 2017 paper uh, that I wrote for AEI right after I joined called STEM Without Fruit, How Non-Cognitive Skills Improve Workforce Outcomes. Um, and the, the, the thesis of that paper is really that um, our educational and training regimes um, actually have it backwards. Um, we tend to focus on technical training first, um, and we don't pay as much attention to other forms of non-technical skills that are needed in the workforce, um, and that what we're, what we're gathering out of the data um, is that while our, our workforce does need technological fluency, it really, these are extremely important. And I don't mean to cast any aspersions on technical skills training or the importance of technical skills. But what it really needs and is currently lacking are um, strong kind of people-facing skills uh, that we're calling for the purposes of this discussion today, non-cognitive skills. We have multiple surveys um, of employers um, that, that really bear this conclusion out. Um, when you ask employers either what they're looking for or what they're missing, typically what you get back is a list of these kinds of non-cognitive skills and really uh, sort of a glancing reference to 
more narrowly defined technical skills. So why should we be concerned about this? In an age of automation, adaptability really rules uh, in the workforce. Non-cognitive skills are kind of a, a way of thinking about them as a master, a set of master skills that are required for learning and adaptation. And because the economy is changing so rapidly, that capacity for adaptation and for learning, the premium on that goes up. In addition to the fact that, you know, three quarters of our workforce is in a service sector, quasi-service sector occupation that involves a lot of interaction, both with colleagues and with the public and customers, these kinds of interpersonal skills, there's really a great premium on, on them. The other thing from a career perspective is that the value of these skills tend to go up as workers age and advance in the workforce. And we saw this in a survey that we did actually of STEM sector workers, where the value of management and leadership skills was significantly higher among mid and late career workers than younger workers. Uh, because as you advance in employment, you're moving into management. Um, and the, again, the, the value of those skills just continues to go up over time. Uh, and that, that's really juxtaposed to kind of technical skills that you have them. You're in the workforce. The technology changes. So those tend to erode uh, over time and require refreshing constantly. Without these non-cognitive skills, workers have difficulty finding jobs, keeping jobs. The old saying about, you know, it's a technical skill that gets you hired and soft skills that get you fired. Uh, and then advancing in their careers. This is a problem across society, um, but the stakes are higher for low-income workers um, that have more difficulty attaching to the labor force and tend to see more churn and uh, more difficulty uh, advancing once they get there. So there are multiple challenges relating to um, the definition of uh, non-cognitive skills and uh, what I call the caught-not-taught pedagogy of uh, non-cognitive skills. We have a problem with vocabulary. Um, for the purposes of this volume, we are using non-cognitive skills, which is the term that we see in the economics literature. Uh, they're also called soft skills. That's in the workforce development world, social, uh, emotional skills in education, employability skills, professional skills. People have a lot of different language for talking about this. So there's a, there's some, I think, and, and some of that is, um, the, the differences are not important, and in some cases they are. Uh, and so uh, ar arriving at some sort of shared pedagogy, I think, is our I mean, vocabulary is something that we need to pay attention to. Um, we also have this pedagogical issue that I talked about. It, we learn non-cognitive skills beginning at birth. It's kind of a serve and return process of socialization, of attachment, of... Um, engagement with other people uh, and they and they accumulate slowly over time. So um, in fact, in most instances, we aren't conscious of learning them. They're sort of happening all the time. And so we don't 
stop and focus on them and say, oh, I'm, I'm in non-cognitive skills class right now. Um, it's kind of ongoing all the time. And uh, they don't easily reduce, I think, to curriculum and, and they don't necessarily um, fit well within our formal teaching strategies. Uh, we don't. Uh, in fact, uh, I would argue that um, it's counterproductive to try to do some of that with these types of skills because they need to be contextualized. So this project, uh, Mining Our Workforce, this project brought together 10 researchers, scholars, and practitioners to examine some of the questions around non-cognitive skills. And the volume uh, is broken basically into three sections. We have a section on theory. What are non-cognitive skills? Where do they come from? How are they rooted in uh, some of what we know about neuroscience? And what role do they play in life and in work? Then we have a section uh, that uh, several authors, including two who are with us today, on some of the labor market um, and research issues associated with non-cognitive skills. Uh, what does the data say about the need for these skills uh, and the economic return on them? Then finally, uh, a section on pedagogy. How are they being taught? Uh, and remediated in the workforce development and human services programs that are especially targeted toward um, uh, uh, low-income um, and, uh, and non-college-bound workers. So here's a picture of the cover, um, which we put a lot of thought into, um, mining our workforce, um, with this idea that... Um, when we're talking about non-cognitive skills, what we're really talking about is relationships between people. Um, as I said, we've got these authors and we're looking at neuroscience, philosophy, labor market, and pedagogy. So for today's event, I'm very pleased and excited to welcome four of our contributors to the volume. First here is Albert Cheng, who is assistant professor at the Department of Education Reform at the University of Arkansas where he teaches courses in education policy and philosophy. Uh, Diane Schanzenbach, who's director of the Institute for Policy Research at Northwestern University, where her research focuses on longer run impacts of early life experiences, including the impacts of kindergarten classroom quality and the impacts of early childhood education. Um, and that's only a small sample of what Diane does, but uh, we'll emphasize that um, for the purposes of this introduction. Harry Holzer, Professor of Public Policy at Georgetown University's McCourt School of Public Policy, and also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Diane uh, also has a post um, at the Brookings Institution. Um, uh, and uh, Harry focuses his um, research on the low-wage low labor market and the problems of minority workers in urban areas. And then uh, Elizabeth Babcock, president and CEO of Economic Mobility Pathways, which is Empath, um, if you go looking for it on the uh, in the internet, which is an international charitable organization dedicated to creating new pathways to economic independence for low-income families through its mobility mentoring platform. So each of these individuals has produced a chapter for the volume. Uh, and they're going to be sharing, uh, uh, we're going to get started here in just a second. We're going to have each of them sharing some of their observations, conclusions, 
drawn from their chapters. And then we're going to move to Q&A, or actually, we're going to do a panel discussion and then Q&A, sorry. So without any further introduction, I want to turn this over to Albert and have him talk to us about his chapter on a more theoretical look, a more philosophical look at um, the sources of social-emotional skills. And here we immediately run into the vocabulary problem of uh, we're, we're talking about non-cognitive skills, which are roughly equivalent to social-emotional skills. So, Albert, go, go right ahead. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for organizing. And I actually, it, it occurred to me, I don't even know if the title of the chapter in there has, uses socio-emotional skills. So um, I think we might have missed that. Um, but I think all of this underscores the problem um, and the challenge that, that you just articulated with definitions. Um, and so, you know, um, I want to encourage you also to read the, uh, the introduction to, to this volume. Um, I think Brent has written one of the um, uh, most succinct summaries of anything I've ever written. Um, and it's like worth the price of admission, better than reading my chapter even. But so, um, but let me uh, maybe dive into the outline of the chapter. Essentially in this, in this chapter, what I'm tackling is the challenge that, that Brent has um, articulated, the challenge of definition, challenge of vocabulary. And that has all sorts of implications for how we study non-cognitive skills, how we think about non-cognitive skills, um, how we teach them. Um, uh, as you've seen, you know, I've, I've used the word social emotional skills. Other folks use 21st century skills. Brent has mentioned soft skills. I'd, I'd add to the complexity by saying that some people call them abilities. Some people call them competencies and they all mean different. They all have different, um, implications, uh, behind that word usage. And so, and, and let me not leave out also more traditional connections to, um, uh, conceptions to, uh, character and virtue. Like how, how are those connected to um, this discussion, discussion on non-cognitive skills? So um, let me dive right in. And what I want to do in what I do in this chapter is not um, solve all the challenge of, um, you know, a lack of kind of clarity in, in definition and vocabulary. Um, but I want, what I want to do is highlight three important aspects um, in any discussion of non-cognitive skills to sketch out um, what I call the an architecture. Um there's really three things that I think need to be elucidated when we talk about non-cognitive skills to, if we want to have any hope of having clarity in, in talking about this. And these three things are um, the ends. It's like, what are non-cognitive skills for? Um, second are practices associated with non-cognitive skills. And I'll uh, talk a little bit more about that in a bit. And then third, um, this question of what we mean by excellence. What's it mean to be proficient or um, demonstrate excellence in a particular non-cognitive skill. So um, let me talk through each of these um, items in brief here and, and kind of color them with, with some um, illustrative examples here. So, um, so first is uh, this question of ends. Um, just what are non-cognitive skills for ultimately? Um, I think this, this volume kind of takes the assumption, um, I mean, it is a book on the workforce, that non-cognitive skills, um, uh, they serve uh, the purpose of um, labor market preparation. Um, they serve the purpose of um, ensuring that individuals can have success in the labor market. Um, you know, you might even add in that, uh, you know, we need a, a good base of, of non-cognitive skills in our pool of human capital so that uh, we have this kind of collective, uh, we can maximize our kind of collective economic efficiency. Um, but what I want to highlight is that those aren't the only examples. Those aren't the only possibilities. 
there's a whole branch of psychology, positive psychology to be more precise, that looks at non-cognitive skills, not simply for success in the labor market, but for just subjective well-being in general, psychic happiness. Or if we even just uh, uh, think back a um, few centuries before ours or many centuries before ours, um, uh, thinkers then, uh, pre-modern thinkers, didn't think of non-cognitive skills um, instrumentally at all, um, you know, that they weren't skills used for something. Um, rather, non-cognitive skills, or I, I guess what they use more uh, precisely is virtue. And, uh, you know, virtue is not something you use. Virtue is something that you are. It's simply constitutive of what being a good human is. Um, is that the end, right? And so I don't want to land on any one of these per se at this moment, but I do want to highlight this important question. We have to ask ourselves, uh, what are non-cognitive skills for ultimately? And then this brings us to uh, the second uh, aspect of non-cognitive skills, namely um, practices. Um, what do these skills even look like in practice? Um, and I, I know that we, and I include myself as someone that does a lot of empirical work in this area, we like to think of these things in the abstract. Um, but the problem is that, you know, all of us at the end of the day are creatures that are, you know, embodied in flesh. Um, you know, non-cognitive skills, um, they're not intelligible unless they're embodied in particular contexts. And that's why, and that's when they are practiced. So, um, I used to teach high school, and um, I'd like to imagine uh, what it'd be like today if I told a student that they need to improve, um, just to do an example of a, a non-cognitive skill, that they need to improve their social awareness, okay? Um, there's a definition for social awareness, which is, quote, the ability to understand perspectives of and empathize with others, including those from diverse backgrounds, cultures, and contexts. Okay. If I just kind of gave them that abstract definition, I'm sure they'd look at me with blank stares and wonder, so, you know, Mr. Chang, Dr. Chang, what do you exactly want me to do? Um, and the point is that um, in any discussion of non-cognitive skills, we need to be attentive to this idea of actually nurturing um, what uh, what these, these practices look like in everyday life. What, what are they tangibly? So, for instance, instead of saying to my students that they need to be more socially aware, um, maybe it looks like uh, cultivating a disposition in them so that, you know, if they look around the classroom and they see a classmate who uh, is struggling with their work, you know, they might go over and check on them and help them with their work. Um, or if they're walking around campus um, in the lunchroom or, or, or outside and to see a kid eating lunch by themselves, um, what does social awareness look like in practice? It might look like going over to sit by them or inviting them to join uh, the group of friends that 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 they're, they're already with. Um, it might look like walking around the hallways and when you see um, your principal or other teachers to thank them for all their hard work or even thank, um, you know, the folks that tend to become unseen on school campuses like um, the custodial staff and the groundskeepers and thank them for serving the ways they serve everybody. And so, you know, th this idea like we can talk about, in this case, social awareness in the abstract um, at the end of the day, though, um, non-cognitive skills are always practiced in some tangible way. And if we don't pay attention to this kind of embodied nature of it, um, we're going to be missing out on a lot here. Um, and this all leads me to my last point, which is this idea of standards of excellence. Um, I think in a lot of the research literature and a lot of the conversations we have around policy circles, we like to talk about maximizing the level of a non-cognitive skill. 
Um, but I think that might be the wrong question. Um, maybe it's not a question of maximization. I think the better question to actually ask is what does excellence look like? Um, so just to use my previous example, um, what does excellent social awareness look like? Um, it doesn't mean getting way up into everybody's business um, and you know obsessing over that. Um, it also doesn't mean the other extreme where you pay no attention to other people. Um, there's a balance to be had. Um, and this is what kind of Aristotle would refer to as, as the golden mean, right? That, that to have a virtue is to have balance um, between two extremes. And so there are cases where um, there's too much social aware awareness, um, right? There are cases where it's inappropriate to ask classmates to divulge um, all their most inner thoughts. Um, maybe it's not a good idea on school campuses to charge in and fight fire with fire if you see a, a friend getting bullied, right? Um, you know, the, I think the point is we need to foster wisdom so that students can actually discern um, appropriately, you know, what does having a non-cognitive skill look like? How do they balance in conjunction with all the other considerations and other non-cognitive skills, um, which is really tied to this idea of having temperance. Um, and so, the last point I want to make is that excellence um, is highly contextual um, because not only does it look, um, do you need to have the right amount of a non-cognitive skill, um, you need to have the right skills across different roles. Um, so I've been kind of using students as an example. Um, so for a student within the life of the school, being an excellent learner or a classmate is going to look a very particular way. But when that student graduates and gets a job and, um, you know, be becomes employed, being, being an excellent employee is going to look very different from the life of the school. And this is not even to mention that the uh, particular way of being an excellent employee is going to differ depending on the actual job that the student does. Right. An excellent teacher is different from an excellent principal is excellent and is different from an excellent groundskeeper. And so, um, you know, I think we would do well to uh, encourage everyone to pursue um, excellence and having uh, the, the right amount of a non-cognitive skills, so to speak, in whatever place they find themselves. And doing so is going to require a lot of careful thinking about what non-cognitive skills are for, how do we actually practice them, and all this kind of careful thinking, um, if I just may end on this note, um, careful thinking, um, perhaps itself, um, is a non-cognitive skill that we need to think about a bit more. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave that just to kind of frame the rest of the discussion and um, look forward to uh, the rest of our time together. I wanted to weave in just a couple of comments about uh, the other chapters in this section around kind of broader definitional, more abstract and philosophical issues, because we had two other authors. Uh, uh, authors, Ian McGilchrist, a psychiatrist uh, and uh, English tutor from Oxford University, um, uh, who wrote a chapter on the way that our um, training, training and education around technical skills actually is kind of at war with the development of uh, non-cognitive capacities, um, which, which I commend. Uh, to uh, those who are interested in reading the volume. Um, and the, um, the second chapter, uh, the other chapter, um, is by Dan Klein, who's a professor at uh, George Mason University, an expert in the works of Adam Smith, uh, and particularly the theory of moral sentiments. 
Um, and he talks, uh, you know, about how um, looking at this from a philosophical perspective and from a uh, relational perspective, how human beings actually develop these capacities. So both of those are excellent essays, well worth your time. Um, now we're going to move on uh, to Diane um, Schanzenbach, uh, as I said, from Northwestern University. She is uh, kind of the godmother of this field. Um, uh, she did a lot of work on it over at uh, the Brookings Institution as part of the Hamilton Project. And I wanted her to come and talk with us a little bit about um, what some of the data tells us about the importance of these skills. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Brent, for inviting me today. Uh, I also commend the, uh, the whole volume to everyone. Of course, there are many types of skills. And so when we think about human capital, we think about a wide range of concepts, knowledge and skills and you know, the things that we are teaching in school like math and reading, etc. But then there are also these skills, habits, judgment, um, that we're, I'm going to call non-cognitive today, but of course, everyone's already pointed out that there are many ways to, um, to describe these. These skills can also be cultivated, developed, and taught, both in school and out of school. Now, of course, at the onset, I want to say it's impossible to fully disentangle cognitive skills from non-cognitive skills. They are um, they interweave in many, many ways. Um, and in fact, we know that there's a positive correlation between people's cognitive and their non-cognitive skills. But what's interesting is that relationship is relatively weak. And so I think we can all think about people who we know who are excellent at, you know, in book learning and math and, you know, other things, uh, but really, uh, you can't put them up in front of people. They can't get along with others, et cetera. These uh, two types of skills, you know, are separate domains and, you know, like I said, are only weakly positive. Um, what I want to make sure that uh, I convey is that today's jobs are demanding more of these non-cognitive skills than did jobs in the past. And I, I think that the literature is pretty clear about Character skills, which include things like self-discipline, persistence, reliability, motivation. And I think those are really the employability skills. And, and then also social and leadership skills, working well with others, persuading, negotiating, uh, etc. So we can go on. I'll sort of walk through a series of, of, of slides that you know are designed to make sort of two big points. The first is that the labor market is increasingly rewarding non-cognitive skills and that those with fewer non-cognitive skills are being left behind. You no know, one's got a crystal ball, but of course I I think that these trends will continue and so we need to you know take very seriously. Uh, development of non-cognitive skills. Uh, there are many ways to develop, nurture, and teach non-cognitive skills, um, including school-based uh, interventions, um, targeted interventions. Preschool um, has certainly been um, an avenue where we've seen a lot of development of non-cognitive skills. And of course, we worked on this project prior to COVID, but COVID has introduced all sorts of, of new challenges around this as you know, many students just missed their preschool year, uh, year and a half entirely. Uh, also teacher quality. But undoubtedly, there are very important community and family-based approaches as well. Let me just uh, lay out a, a couple of facts on this. The first is that there are strong payoffs to both cognitive and non-cognitive skills. Uh, 
this, uh, the horizontal axis here is a uh, person's own percentile rank in the distribution of either cognitive skills or non-cognitive skills. So that, you know, closer to, you know, the zero and 20% have low levels of cognitive and non-cognitive skills up at the top have high levels. And the vertical axis is median earnings. So what you can see here is median earnings are higher for those with higher levels of skills, whether it's cognitive skills, which are in the triangles here, or non-cognitive skills, which are in the circles. You uh, will also notice that there are stronger returns at the tails of the distribution. So you can see um, out you know, near the 100% um, earnings really pop up quite dramatically, suggesting that there are real, you know, extra returns to having high levels of both cognitive and non-cognitive skills. And then also down at the bottom, there are large penalties for having low levels um, of this. Over time, as I'll show in the next slide, there are increasing returns to these non-cognitive skills. First, I want to lay out that the United States economy is demanding more non-cognitive skills. So this graph here shows the increase relative to 1980 in need for service skills, social skills, analytic reading, which you can think of as math, um, and routine skills. And so here you've got the increase between 1980 and 1990 in blue, 2000 in green, and 2012 in the orange color. And what you can see here uh, is that there's been strong increases, especially in 2000 and, and 2012, in the need for service skills and social skills, uh, and big declines in routine tasks. Now, this uh, is true both in terms of what kind of jobs the economy is creating, but then also holding fixed the existing jobs. Um, Dave Deming at Harvard has shown that uh, there's been a shift uh, you know, even a job that existed, you know, in 1980 now is requiring more and more service skills, social skills, etc. So the economy is demanding more of these non-cognitive skills. So we go on to the next slide. We can see that it's also rewarding non-cognitive skills more highly today. So what this uh, set of graphs shows is uh, the impact of of having non-cognitive skills. Um, here it was uh, measured as participating in extracurriculars on your earnings at age 25. So we have two sets of age students, those who were interviewed back in the 1970s, and then those were, who were interviewed 20 years later in 1999, still 25-year-olds. You can see that the returns in terms of higher earnings for those who participated in an extracurricular activity uh, more than doubled over those time periods. We could go to the other side, math achievement. The return to that also doubled, but you can see um, you know, the, that the return, uh, you know, is, looks you know larger here uh, for extracurricular participation. Uh, we're not pitting these two types of skills against one another. We're, really, the point here is that the economy is demanding more of these skills and it's rewarding them more. Now, I'll note, and it's not on the graph here, it's just in the, in the words, that having high levels of both cognitive and non-cognitive skills has this bonus impact on earnings. And the benefits to having high levels of both also has been increasing by about six percentage points per decade. So these are large uh, increases. Of course, one problem is that uh, these 
skills are unequally distributed uh, across socioeconomic status. So here, what we're showing is the average cognitive and non-cognitive skills among youth by the level of education that their parents have. So uh, you can see non-cognitive in the blue, cognitive skills in the um, in the orange, and we can compare those whose parents just have a high, less than a high school diploma, a high school diploma, and post-secondary. You can see for both types of skills, there's a strong gradient. In fact, you'll see that the uh, gradient in cognitive skills, that is the relationship between parents' um, education and children's skills is even stronger than it is for, for non-cognitive skills. Nonetheless, there are strong gradients uh, in both of these. I'll point out that these gaps are evidence across all points of the lifespan. Um, it's evident quite early in preschool years, in elementary schools, and then on through the labor market. These gaps that we see also relate to uh, to intermediate outcomes like education. So those with lower levels of cognitive, non-cognitive skills are less likely to complete high school and college, even conditional on their cognitive abilities. So of course, uh, we, we want to think about policy options to improve non-cognitive skills. And I offer these in the spirit of of a couple of things. One is, of course, that the economic returns to non-cognitive skills aren't the only reason that we care about these. You know, there's, uh, it has a lot to do with living the good life. But the fact remains that they do matter for economic outcomes. And as a result, we need to really you know, keep that in mind and make sure that as a society, we are cultivating, developing, and teaching these. So there's some good news. Um, there are promising avenues, um, to build these skills in young and older alike. I think some of the strongest evidence comes from high quality preschool programs. Uh, some of that comes from evidence from model preschools in the 1960s, like Perry, the Perry Preschool Program and the Abysterian Program, but also in more modern times from Head Start. I think there's also good evidence from, from Job Corps and other programs that uh, really come alongside uh, youth with who are having trouble launching into the labor market. Um, and then I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of evidence sort of being built on the importance of this. And so there's studies of middle and high school students developing aspects of self-regulation, mindfulness, service, etc. But there's plenty of bad news here, too. Um, I'm certainly not out here selling you uh, that we know some magic bullet. And, you know, if we just do this, everything will go well. Uh, this is much more complicated than that. And uh, some characteristics of non-cognitive skills mean that it's particularly hard to, to devise incentives and accountability policies to develop these well in the school setting. And so uh, what I'll leave you with is, you know, we think that not only there are important roles for schools, although those will be hard to, you know, to really put the guardrails around, of course, families and community organizations and extracurricular activities are going to play an important role here as well. So I'll leave it there and look forward to further conversation. Thanks, Diane. Um, really important point there at the end about uh, this tension um, uh, relating to, you know, we need these things. We also need to have accountability and, and, um, and you know, a, a clear view into them and ways that we're teaching them and so on. And it kind of goes back to what I mentioned at the beginning um, with what Ian McGilchrist says about this uh, or re in relation to this is, um, it, it, you know, they, these skills are organic 
and um, they they do kind of defy um, the kind of categorization that we like to apply um, and, uh, and to skill development and things like that uh, and and teaching strategies. Um, uh, and the, the harder we look at them, the less we can see them, you know, there's something about, you know, this like need to stand, we need to be able to also stand back so that we can uh, appreciate uh, the, the bigger picture around how these skills develop. So uh, you've got some interesting um, work uh, in the paper and in this chapter, as well as another work about the role of community institutions and uh, non-governmental and all of the, all of the uh, various kind of civil society uh, bodies that contribute to this development as well. Because as I said at the beginning, it's happening all the time. Right. This isn't something that we say, OK, I'm done with math and now I'm going to do non-cog. Uh, it's not like that. Non-cog is built into everything that we do. So thank you. It was a great presentation. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.